Hi, everybody. I'm to try it again. Hi, everybody. <laughs> I guess it's not really, is it morning still? I don't know. Anyways, welcome to Redwood. Welcome to those of you tuning in online. Uh, my name is Melissa, one of the pastors here. When my family gets together, we usually end up playing games, like board games or card games or something like that. And about 20 years ago or so, our go-to game was Risk. Do you know this game? Yes. <laughs> uh, Risk is a game that involves chance, uh, rolling the dice to see who has the bigger number, but it's also a game of strategy. Now, the goal is to take over the entire world, and the strategy is where are you going to start? Are you going to be on the offensive or on the defensive? And risk also involves a little bit of soft strategy. Now, my husband, Jay, is really good at the soft strategy. So when our family was really into this one Christmas, we played this epic game. Me, uh, Jay, my brother, Maury, and my brother-in-law, Cody. And the game lasted about two nights, two evenings. And uh, Jay put his soft strategy into action, and it looks like this. Jay's really good at um, like making jokes and distracting people from the game, and so we're not really paying attention and we're missing important moves that we should be making. Or he'll tease you, and he'll just tease you just enough so that you just start to get a little bit angry, and it puts you off your game. In this particular game of Risk, just as we were getting ready, or just as we were starting, I felt Jay's foot tap me uh, from under the table. And he wasn't trying to distract me. He wasn't trying to be romantic and play footsies. He uh, was actually trying to draw me into an alliance, and I knew that because of the look he gave me, kind of like a... And so I thought this was a good idea, so I did a back. And uh, I knew by our subtle gestures that what we were agreeing to is he and I would take out Maury, and we would take out Cody, and then in the end, we'd battle against each other to see who won. So the game progressed, and I started to notice something happening. I was battling Maury all the time, and I was battling Cody all the time, and Jay was sitting back, and he wasn't fighting anybody. And so I started to get a little bit suspicious. And so I cried out at one point, Jay, save me. What about our alliance? And my brother said, Wait, what? Jay saved me. What about our alliance? And my brother-in-law, Cody, says, uh-uh, I have the alliance with Jay. It turns out Jay was playing footsies with all of us, and we all had an alliance with him. While he sat back, we got weaker, and he got stronger. But actually, the joke was on Jay. You see, my brother-in-law, Cody, is an even better strategist when it comes to games. He saw through Jay all along. He let this play out, and when we finally discovered it, my brother Maury and I went after Jay, and he was the one sitting back, getting stronger and stronger and stronger before he made his move, took over the world, and took the win. I put my faith and my hope in the wrong person. I thought that Jay would save me. I should have hitched my wagon to Cody's star. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Journey to the Cross, where we've been looking at the last week of Jesus' life before he heads to the cross. And today, we are looking at a climactic moment in the story. Jesus is on trial. And in the story that we're going to read today, we're seeing all sorts of people trying to be saved in all sorts of different ways, except 
through the one person who can save them from everything. The context of our story is this. Jesus goes through actually several different trials before different people, and he's already been through his first trial. He gets arrested by the religious authorities, the high priests, and when he's hauled before the high priests, he actually comes out and he admits that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, but they don't believe him because they think that they need to be saved from the government, the oppressive imperial Roman government that is making life very, very hard for them. This guy, Jesus, who claims to be their savior, is not doing a very good job of saving them from their oppressor. And so when Jesus claims to be the savior, he's not coming through the way they thought he would, but he's also speaking against God. He can't be the savior because they knew the savior would be God, and this guy clearly isn't. So the high priests do not have the authority to put Jesus to death, so they bring him before the Roman governor, and this is where we pick up today, the next part of Jesus' trial. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At the time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. Now before I read on, I just want to pause for a second. Pilate is making a mistake. He sees the crowd before him and he thinks that they are there to save Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, a little while earlier, like four or five days earlier, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem and he has given a king's welcome. The crowds who were there that day were there when Jesus entered and they are waving palm branches and they're putting them down before Jesus' donkey and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. So Pilate wants to appease the crowd, but he doesn't realize that he's making a mistake. So let's go on, verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two of you do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, 
but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we've heard this story before, many of us. It's often read at this time of the year as we lead up to Easter. And we think about those crowds, those people who once shouted Hosanna, shouting, crucify him. And our heart breaks. Yet, if we had been in the crowd that day, we probably would have been shouting, crucify him too. And so, Father, by the power of your Spirit, would you open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to know what it is you're saying to us, your church, so that instead of calling out, crucify him, we call out, save us, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so today's story is about salvation. Everybody wants to be saved from something in our story today. We've got the crowd. The crowd wants to be saved from oppressive Roman rule. They thought Jesus would be the one to save them, but he has let them down. The priests want to be saved from Jesus. The priests have been given a pretty good position by that Roman government. They've got power and control and authority, but here comes Jesus and Jesus is threatening them. So they want to be saved from Jesus. Not by Jesus, but from Jesus. And then the Roman governor, Pilate, He's also looking for salvation that day too. As a governor, a Roman governor of a remote Roman outpost, his only job is to keep the peace. And if a riot erupts, he might end up getting arrested and maybe even killed himself. Everybody in the story wants to be saved from something. And we see this coming together when we see the release of the prisoner, Jesus Barabbas, the criminal instead of Jesus Christ, the Savior. Now, normally, as most pastors do, I come with a sermon that is neat two or three or four points, but today is only a one-pointer because there's only one question that needs to be asked and answered today. Who or what is my Savior? Who or what is my Savior? Now, before you tune out, thinking, ah, pretty straightforward. Maybe you are not a follower of Jesus and you're like, oh no. She's talking about Jesus saves and you're thinking about billboards and t-shirts and people with signs and it sounds really cliche. Please stick with me because we all need to be saved from something and it doesn't matter who or what it is, we will all look for a savior. And if you're tuning out or you're thinking about tuning out because you're like, I'm good. I've been saved. I'm fine. Keep this in mind. The people in the crowds who are most vehemently opposed to Jesus, who most wanted him to be crucified, were the most religious people in the crowd. We should take note and we should pay attention. And so, who or what is my savior? Let's start with that word saved. What does it mean when we say Jesus saves? What are we wanting to be saved from anyways? I made a list this week of the things that I want to be saved from in preparation for this message, and here is my list. Melissa wants to be saved from high gas and grocery bills. I want to be saved from the effects of aging. I want to be saved from online bullies because my 
sermons go online every single week, and I know that the internet can be kind of a weird and vicious place. I want to be safe from potholes developing on my street. This is very real. I especially want to be safe from the potholes developing in my alley because my alley has become a lake and I'm worried I'm not going to be able to get my car out anymore. I want to be saved from the fear of what other people think of me. I want to be saved from the worry over my kids' futures. I want to be saved from my food allergies. <laughs> this is a practical list. What do you want to be saved from this morning? I want you to think about that for just a second. I'm just going to pause. I know for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, the temptation might be to think, oh, I want to be safe from sin or I want to be safe from shame. But I want you to think practically for a second. What do you want to be saved from? All right. So when I go back to my list, if those are thy main concerns in my life, then there are many things that could save me. Let's take high gas and grocery bills. What can save me from high gas and grocery bills? More money. <laughs> if I had more money, it doesn't matter how much the prices go up, I will always be able to pay my bills. In this case, my savior is money. Here's something else that could save me. Maybe a government solution to lower inflation. So in this case, my savior would be the government or the economist who figures it all out. This is a little bit like the crowd that day, the Jewish crowd. They have a very, very practical need that is a lot like my desire to be saved from high costs of living. Under Roman rule, life is hard. Taxes are really, really high. And they're getting higher, and they're getting higher, and they're getting higher. And oppression and poverty is increasing. And the Roman government is ruthless. They arrest people, and you never know what's going to happen. Is today the day that I'm going to get arrested? Is today the day that I'm going to be sentenced to die? They have a very, very practical and real thing that they want to be saved from. Now, let's go a little bit deeper on my list. I want to be saved from the fear of what other people think of me. This is legitimate. I think probably a lot of people feel this way. So what can save me from the fear of what other people think of me? It could be finding more self-worth and a stronger identity through therapy and self-help books. Uh, in this case, my savior would be a therapist or the books that I'm reading. Or it could be hanging out with better people, like people who affirm me and love me and accept me. And in this case, my savior would be my friends. Now, notice that none of these little S saviors are bad. They're actually good. It would be good if the cost of living was decreased. It would be good for everybody. Therapy is good. I have a great therapist who I've gone to off and on over the years, and she's helped me find healing immensely. But what if there was a salvation that came that was much deeper than that, that addressed all of the things underneath all of our needs and all of our wants? What if instead of a government solution to lower the cost of living, what if there was a kingdom, a new kingdom? And in this kingdom, there was no poverty, no amassing of wealth by the elite, no taking advantage of one another. And in this kingdom, there's a king, a king who loves his people like a father and who takes care of everybody and nobody goes in need. And what if in this kingdom, 
We don't have to worry about what other people think of us because we know that we are loved by the king in the most profound way that we could ever be loved. And because of this, everybody who's in the kingdom loves one another and treats one another with respect and dignity. This is the kind of salvation that Jesus has come to offer that day. The salvation that is going to come through the cross. In our story today, we see those two guys named Jesus. We see Jesus Barabbas and Jesus called the Messiah. Both of these men are given a chance to be released, to be saved from the crowd that day. They're both given a chance because it's the fest- it is a festival time, and according to the custom, the Roman governor will release one of those people the person who is chosen by the crowd, the person who is going to be able to save the crowd, at least according to the crowd's opinion. And so let's take a look at these two guys, Jesus Barabbas and Jesus, the Son of God. We already noticed that they share the same name, Jesus. This was a popular name at the time, so it wouldn't have been surprising. But an interesting thing is that the name Jesus means rescuer or savior. So they've got two guys in front of them, and their name both means Savior. Which Savior are they going to choose? The next thing we notice about Jesus Barabbas and Jesus called the Messiah is that Jesus Barabbas has a second name, Barabbas. Barabbas means Bar-Abbas, two Greek words, Bar meaning son, Abba meaning father. So Jesus Barabbas means Savior, son of the father. Barabbas is kind of like a last name, like Johnson, the son of John, or Erickson, the son of Eric. Jesus Barabbas, savior, son of the father. But then you have this other Jesus, who's already told everybody that he is a savior, and he's acting like it too. And he's already told them that he is the son of God, and that God is his father. So the choice before the people today is between Jesus Barabbas, savior, son of the father, versus Jesus, the son of the father. Barabbas, the son of an earthly father, fully human. Jesus, son of the father, fully human, fully divine. Again, which savior are they going to choose? Remember, though, what they want to be saved from. Jesus Barabbas who I'll call Barabbas from here on out, has done a couple of things that sways the crowd in his favor. Now, he was a a Jewish man in a Roman jail. The reason why Jewish men ended up in Roman jails is because they've tried to overthrow the government through force. Remembering that this is what the people want. They want the government overthrown. He's already acted like their savior. He's already done the things that they want him to do in the way that they want him to do it. However, he's not been successful. Now he's sitting in jail. And so when this other Jesus comes into town, this other guy claiming to be the Savior, the Son of God, and he has already displayed amazing acts of power. He has healed people. He has raised them from the dead. He has made food miraculously appear. He's going to be the one to overthrow the Roman government because he has the power to do it. 
So why is he sitting on trial in front of the governor? And why is he doing nothing? Frederick Dale Bruner, a biblical scholar, writes this. A perfect parallel. Two popular men, both named Jesus, both called son of the father. Which of the two holds the greatest promise for Israel's future, even short-term in relation to hated Rome? The tested revolutionary or the quiet man? The believer in the power of the knife or the believer in the power of angels? The realist or the dreamer? An Israelite might temporarily be forgiven for thinking that Jesus Barabbas is the more realistic hope for Israel's immediate future than a preacher of nonviolence against oppression. Of course, they choose Barabbas. Of course. And of course, Pilate gives in. Because remember, he's looking to be saved as well. If a riot breaks out, his skin is on the line. If a riot breaks out, he could be the one who's put to death. Put yourself in Pilate's shoes for a minute. So imagine you're Pilate, and your only job is to keep the peace. And this is a very, very important job, and you know if it fails that you might end up dying. Now listen to this exchange between Pilate and the crowd, keeping that in mind. Verse 21. Which of the two of you do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And the crowd is getting more and more and more riled up and Pilate can see that he's losing control. And so even though he knows that Jesus is innocent, he does this political thing. He washes his hands in front of the crowd, symbolically saying, I am innocent. This is not on me. But his next action shows that he is anything but innocent. He releases Barabbas and he condemns Jesus to die. And then we get Jesus. He's in the middle of all of this. And he's doing nothing. All this action swirling around him. And the savior of the world is silent. And of course, Jesus could have saved himself. But he didn't. Because he was working on saving the world. Jesus came to save everybody from the oppression underneath everything of all kinds. He came to save all the people there that day from insecurity and fear and envy and control, all the things behind their actions. He came to save them from death. He came to save them from sin and brokenness. He came to save them from the evil that was underneath all of it. And to do this, Barabbas had to be the one to be released because Jesus had to go to the cross. It was his destination all along. There was no other way. And so this brings us to our key question again. Who or what is my savior? 
I want you to think again about that list that you came up with in your head about the things that you want to be saved from. The things that are oppressing you, the things that are holding you down, the things that are getting in your way. What do you want to be saved from? And now I want to ask you, have you been choosing a savior like a Barabbas? Something that will give you short term relief, but won't actually save you in the way that you most need to be saved? That will actually deal with the underlying issues? Who or what is your savior? I was speaking with a friend earlier this week, and he was sharing with me how he had been recently let down by some close friends that he had, and he was feeling pretty broken up about it, actually. So he's recently gotten this new job and this amazing promotion at work, and he wanted to have a celebratory dinner. He had been working for this his whole life. It had been his goal, and he wanted to invite his parents to it, his dad in particular, and he wanted to invite his friends to celebrate with him. But the problem was the date that he had chosen to celebrate, his friends couldn't make it. So he shifted the whole date of the celebra celebratory dinner to another date, and everybody said they could come, but two days before the dinner, his friends bailed. And they bailed for things that really weren't that important, not as important as celebrating their friend. And so as we were chatting, I asked my friend, why is this promotion, why is your job and this dinner and your friends so important to you? Because I could see that he was really, really in pain. And after reflection, he said something along these lines. My dad always told me growing up that the best thing I could do was be successful in my job so that I could take care of my family. And one of the ways of doing that would be to surround myself with the kind of people I wanted to be like. And so I saw these two guys at work, and I saw that they were the kind of people that I wanted to be like, that they were good at their job, they were successful, uh, all of the stuff that really was my end goal. So he chose to hang out with them. And at first it started as networking, but then they became friends. At least he thought that they had become friends. And so he realized that he had put his hopes in all of the wrong things. The more we chatted, the more we saw that my friend was trying to first be saved from the disappointment or from disappointing his dad by being successful at work. And he's trying to be saved from insignificance by making a big deal of the celebratory dinner, noting his accomplishments. And he was trying to be saved by loneliness, by having his friends there and all the people coming. He was very successful in his job, but he realized that pleasing his dad and having those friends and all that stuff didn't actually save him, didn't actually give him what he most needed. Because there is only one savior that can do that. A little later on, after Jesus died, and after he rose again, and after he ascended into heaven, he gave his Holy Spirit to his followers, that they would continue on with the work that he had started. One of those guys was Peter. 
We talked about Peter last week. Peter who disowned Jesus, who abandoned him when Jesus was on trial. Yet Peter is reinstated and Peter is given this important job of starting the church, of, being, of starting the very first church plant. It's Peter upon whom the church is built, actually, according to Jesus. And so we have Jesus, Peter, empowered by the Spirit, carrying on the work that Jesus started. He's preaching the good news and he's healing people in Jesus' name. And once again, those same religious leaders are threatened. They're trying still to be saved by their political power, by their position, and by their control. And they see that Jesus is still messing with them, even though Jesus has already, decide, has already died. So they arrest Peter right after Peter, Peter has healed somebody. And this is what Peter says in his defense to the religious leaders in Acts 4, verses 10 to 12. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, who has become the chief cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Only Jesus saves. So I ask you one more time, what do you need saving from? And who or what is your savior? Because of the cross, if you have been looking for salvation in something or someone else other than Jesus, it doesn't matter. Jesus went to the cross anyway. He went to the cross before we even knew him, and forgiveness is freely offered no matter what we have done. All we have to do is accept it and know that Jesus is the Savior. And so, if you would like to be saved from the things that really matter, I invite you to pray along with me. Uh, I'm going to pray out loud. Feel free to pray along in the quiet of your heart if these words are your words as well. Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, King of heaven, forgive us. Forgive us for the ways that we have tried to find salvation in someone or something other than you. And in doing so, we have joined with the crowd, shouting, crucify him. Thank you that even though we have found our salvation in other places. You still went to the cross. You still made a way for us to be saved. Saved from ourselves. Saved from oppression. Saved from injustice. Saved from our sin and our brokenness. Saved from death. Jesus, instead of crying out, crucify him, we cry out, save us. Save us, Jesus. 
And we pray these things in your name. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.